So it's uh, a great pleasure for me to have and for all of us to have um, Cecile Laborde uh, here. She has been press uh, at the moment and uh, purchasable in the shops in September uh, a book on critical republicanism with uh, Oxford University Press um, and has written widely in uh, areas of multiculturalism, secularism, uh, but uh, previous work was on pluralist thought uh, and the state in Britain and France uh, at the beginning of the 20th century and has published widely on uh, these topics as well as uh, other topics in political theory. Um, this evening is part of the book, right? Is that correct? So, uh, essentially a snippet of the uh, overall argument on critical republicanism. Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Alex. I'm just testing the microphone here. Uh, can, can everyone hear me? Should I move sideways? What, I, what I'd like to do uh, today is to um, offer some reflections on uh, the meaning of secularism as a political theory. That's to say a theory of how the state should treat its citizens, not uh, as a moral theory of how individuals should, leave, uh, should lead their, li their lives. The, p the particular thought I'd like to pursue is... Um, the thought that a secular or a religiously neutral state best expresses the ideal of equal respect towards all citizens, religious or not. And in the process of, of mounting this defense, I want to answer the charge, which is quite a common charge, that the secular state is unfair to members of religious minorities, such as Muslims. Now, my thoughts on this uh, topic were articulated uh, in response to um, my studies of, of the French controversy over the wearing of uh, religious symbols, such as the, uh, in particular the hijab, uh, in state schools, and controversies over the meaning of uh, laïcité, which is the French for uh, secularism. Now, in the book, I, I argue very strongly against uh, the ban uh, on hijab. But I, what I also try to do is to suggest that opposition to the ban need not imply opposition to the ideals of secularism themselves, provided these are correctly understood as expressing ideals of fairness and equality between all citizens. And I want to suggest that one problem with contemporary Western states uh, is that they're still marked by the legacy of Christian establishment and as a result the question of how to treat citizens fairly in practice is more, is more complicated than both advocates and critics of secularism recognize. Now to see this I want to start by uh, identifying two uh, positions on the connection between secularism and equality which is the one I'm interested in in this, in this talk. The two positions I want to outline very briefly are what I call elsewhere the official Republican position and the tolerant Republican position. This again is in relation to the hijab controversy over which I, will, I shall have very little to say today, uh, but the two positions basically refer to the former to those who 
put forward arguments in favour of the ban and the latter to those who put arguments in, uh, against the ban. Now, official Republicans, what do they claim in relation to the, the equality problem? They claim that only a, neutrally, uh, so a religiously neutral public sphere respects citizens equally and therefore they urge Muslims to respect the religious neutrality of the public sphere by privatizing their uh, religion. So the conception of equality they endorse, we might say, is one of separation between a state or the public sphere and uh, religions. Critics of this uh, official secularism or official republicanism take a more accommodationist position. They say, well, in practice, Western states, for example, the French state, um, does not meet the ideal of secularism, and therefore they demand that Islam be recognized on a par with Christianity and other religions. The conception of equality that they endorse is one of pragmatic even-handedness between religious groups. So we have two positions here uh, on the secularism equality connection, or two, two conceptions of equality. One is um, separation, the other one is even-handedness. What I want to suggest to you is that both are problematic for somewhat similar reasons. And I want to um, suggest an, an alternative position, which I call critical uh, republicans. So to do this, I proceed in three steps. First step, um, I try to suggest very briefly, because I covered some of the ground elsewhere, both official and tolerant rep uh, republican positions are problematic because they both suffer from a form of status quo neutrality which fails to assess the legitimacy of existing church-state arrangements. That's the first part of the argument. The second step is to set out my critical Republican principles of, of secular impartiality, where I try to identify a baseline against which practical claims of fairness between members of particular religious groups or none can be uh, evaluated. And lastly, I try to give you a sense of the kind of work the theory can do by showing how those principles help us respond to a range of Muslim demands for public recognition in France and uh, elsewhere. Okay, so let me start with my first um, <coughs> section here, which, which is about this conception of status quo neutrality. This is an expression that I borrow from uh, Cass Sustein. Uh, but I want to, to, take, to take a fairly broad approach to it. I understand status quo neutrality to be um, a theoretical position which takes the existing distribution of burdens and benefits in society for granted, or more, more precisely, a position which fails to provide an impartial baseline from which current claims about inequalities or unjust treatment can be normatively uh, assessed. And I want to suggest that neither official nor tolerant Republicans are sufficiently critical of existing church-state uh, arrangements. Their respective attitude towards the status quo is problematic, although for opposite reasons. So let me try to show this. 
Well, official Republicans, to start with them, uh, they conduct the defense of uh, laïcité, the idea of, of separation of church and state, <coughs> through abstraction from the status quo. So they focus exclusively on explicating how things should be, but pay no attention to justifying or criticizing how things are. So they respond to Muslim demands for recognition with a principled and abstract defense of the separation between state and religion, willfully ignoring the fact that the French state is neither indifferent towards religious groups nor neutral between them. So they expose themselves to the charge that the state should not make demands on Muslims that it doesn't make on other religious uh, believers. The classic example of this um, flaw is um, the refusal to divert public funds towards helping Muslims uh, build mosques, when in practice, uh, Catholic churches that are built before 1905 in France, before the separation law, are by historical agreement maintained, still maintained by uh, the state, by local municipalities. So the thought here is that directly and uncritically applying abstract rules of neutrality in non-ideal conditions only perpetuates the status quo and legitimizes existing inequalities between dominant and minority religions. As one um, Dutch sociologist put it, uh, the shift to state neutrality is like drawing up the bridge in front of the newcomers. Tolerant Republicans, for their part, suffer from uh, an opposite problem. They justify their critique of, of laïcité through idealization of, not abstraction from, the status quo. So their claim, at its simplest, is that the existing rights and privileges enjoyed by the historically dominant church should be extended in the name of fairness to more recently established minority religions such as Islam. This is an argument you find very clearly spelled out by uh, Tariq Maudoud uh, in the context of English debates about uh, le the legitimacy of disestablishment. Uh, Tariq Maudoud, um, um, in, in the context of debates about whether the established status of the Anglican Church uh, can benefit religious minorities, uh, argued that we should aim to, as he put it, equalize upward that is, uh, have a system of multi-faith recognition instead of what he calls the French solution, which is equalized uh, downwards, that is, uh, disestablishment. This is quite similar to the argument of French tolerant Republicans who argue that Islam sh should benefit from an extension of and, and a generalization of the implicit system of recognized cults that in practice is prevalent uh, in France. So they... They take an openly practical approach to the even-handed treatment of minorities under non-neutral conditions, and they're much more aware than official Republicans are to the complexity of demands for contextual fairness. But I would argue they tend to idealize the status quo and make virtue out of necessity in their eagerness to ensure some kind of equity between majority and minority religions they gloss over the need for the proper justification of the existing entitlements and privileges of the historically dominant uh, church or religious group. So they argue, for instance, that the right to set up their own schools cannot consistently be denied to Muslims, given that it has been granted to Christians and Jews. 
but they've not established whether faith schools are legitimate in the first place. So they are also vulnerable to what I call the charge of status quo neutrality. They, no more than official Republicans, make a systematic effort to justify or criticize existing state-religion relationships. So the thought, the introductory thought, if you like, is that while official Republicans' theory of separation is too abstract and too disconnected from reality to provide fair and practical guidelines for reform, tolerant Republicans' uh, theory of even-handed fairness is too ad hoc and it lacks principled criteria with which to distinguish between legitimate and illegitimate forms of political recognition of religion. Both sides, for different reasons, fail to identify and defend a benchmark of religious equality against which the status quo can be criticized and reforms can be justified. So if this is the case, I think we should take a step back and try to identify what this benchmark might be. In other words, that's why I want to provide some kind of defense of uh, uh, secularism, try to identify exactly what a secular state should commit us to, and then what implications this should have for practical uh, reform. Okay, so let me now move on to my uh, second uh, section, and if you like, um, we try to identify what it is about secularism that we should uh, value, <coughs> or what does it commit us to. Okay, at the simplest uh, level, I think a, a democratic state is secular in the sense that it doesn't affirm any religious creed and it doesn't seek to confer special benefits or burdens to citizens affirming any religious creed or none. So in this way, it is fair to all. It shows equal respect to adherence to the majority religion, minority religions, and adherence to no religion at all. Uh, this is because secularism seeks common ground, and Hecht's hypothesis, this cannot lie in controversial conceptions of the good. Um, among such conceptions are the belief that God exists and the belief that God does not exist. Both concep conceptions are uh, controversial. A secular state, by eschewing all references to God, avoids taking sides between these two conceptions. Now, you might say there's a sleight of hand going on here, so making no reference to God is more problematic for those who believe in God's existence uh, than it is for those who, who do not. Uh, I would uh, argue that this is an, an unavoidable uh, asymmetry that's connected to what a neutral state is committed to. And it's not a hypocritical side of hand on the part of secularists intent on foisting their substantive agnostic or atheistic way of life on others. I think the burden of proof really uh, lies with critics of secularism. They must show that there is an alternative, non-secular non basis on which the common ground of citizenship can be based. Um, to put the question thus is to imply that uh, in pluralist societies, genuinely common ground cannot have a religious basis for such basis would fail to be publicly comprehensible here I refer to Robert Audi's work, and would therefore fail to offer adequate justifying reasons for the exercise of state power. Okay, 
this may sound like a strong um, case, but yeah, it, it doesn't commit us to very much. What it commits us to saying, it's simply to saying that constitutional essentials and state policy must be secular and citizenship rights must be independent of religious membership. But it doesn't commit us to the view that religious belief can have no place in political argument and civic life more broadly. And I think laïcité is far too demanding if it requires the complete privatization of belief, uh, whatever that means. Um, so I would um, argue that it's perfectly acceptable for citizens to enter politics out of religious conviction, to introduce religious arguments in broad public debate, but it's not acceptable for the Constitution to be theologically inspired or for public officials to justify public decisions by reference to religious views. I think in both cases, common grounds, principles should be uh, appealed to. Generally, critical, the, the critical republicanism that I uh, defend tends to be fairly tolerant of the religious expression of ordinary citizens, but I tend to adopt a less tolerant stance towards the display of religious allegiance or support by state institutions. To put it differently, I think secularism should primarily be seen as an institutional doctrine of separation, prescribing the extent to which institutions and the public sphere more generally must remain secular so that citizens don't have to be secular, so that citizens can freely follow their conscience. So the way I put it is to say that a tough institutional doctrine is the condition for a tolerant doctrine of conscience. Um, the gray area, of course, is, is the, 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 the tricky question of the expression of religious belief by state officials. Uh, so ordinary citizens in their capacity as uh, state officials. I won't, uh, don't have time to... Uh, say much more on this uh, now. I'm happy to answer questions on this. But the, the, the thought really be behind the institutional doctrine of separation is that uh, we should be concerned about the potentially conformist, divisive, or discriminatory effects of the material and symbolic recognition of religion in the public sphere. Um, that's why Republicans tend to also construct the public sphere fairly expansively as a space where citizens can meet as citizens. So a non-sectarian, non-confessional public space best embodies the ideal of democratic impartiality by showing respect to all citizens regardless of their particular belief. Now a further thought is among such spaces might be the, the, the schools, state schools, and I'll say a bit more about Republican education um, be later. Right, so far, so laic, you might think. You might say, well, this is not very different from official republicanism as I've uh, highlighted it. Um, however, um, there are problems with uh, the idea of, of separation and, and the religiously neutral public spheres. And in relation to my discussion of the hijab controversy, I'd show that the religiously neutral public sphere might not be always the best way to treat citizens equally. And this happens, I argue, when uh, separation imposes unreasonable burdens on the exercise of basic religious rights and when it endorses the form of uh, status quo neutrality which in practice advantages 
dominant religions. So in my effort to provide some kind of benchmark of religious equality against which religious claims can be assessed, I want to add two provisors to my general defense of separationism. Um, so the full principle reads as, as such. There's a main clause and there's two provisors. So the main clause reads, uh, the state should not support a religion or the principle of separation should be respected unless this uh, unreasonably burdens the exercise of basic religious freedoms or legitimizes status quo entitlements which unduly disadvantage minority religious groups. Now, there's a lot packed in into all the adverbs, and I won't have time to um, discuss all the details of, of, the, of, the, of, of the sentence, but let me just briefly spell out what the two provisors uh, are. The first one, let me call it the basic free exercise provisor. So the thought here is simply to say that a secular state is fair to or in inclusive of all citizens insofar as it doesn't unreasonably burden them or advantage them in virtue of their religious or non-religious beliefs. And religious citizens can be considered to be unreasonably burdened if existing arrangements make it impossible or very difficult for them to practice the basic tenets of their religion. I'll give you one very interesting example. Uh, the, 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 the French state... Uh, has a duty, considers itself to have a duty uh, to provide uh, chaplaincy services in enclosed institutions such as uh, prisons, boarding schools, um, hospitals uh, and, and the armed forces. So this is out of public money. Uh, uh, priests or rabbis or imams are paid out of public funds to provide religious service is an enclosed institution. The thought being that um, failure to do that would infringe a very important right of religious exercise, given that by definition people cannot leave enclosed institutions, so not, they can't go out, out in the private sphere to exercise their basic rights of religious exercise. So this is one you know, concrete application of the basic free exercise proviso. The second proviso I call the contextual parity proviso, and this, is, this addresses the fairness of secularist demands on minority. Now, official laicity, insofar as it urges religious minorities or members of religious minorities to protect, to respect the principle of separation, may impose unfair burdens on them in cases when dominant religions have historically benefited from favorable treatment by the state. So the very difficult problem here is how to achieve uh, equality between religions under uh, status quo, non-ideal conditions. And the basic intuition is to say that status quo entitlements which significantly burden minority religious groups must be justified, corrected, or compensated for. Only then can we guarantee the roughly equal right to practice Islam under institutional conditions which despite being formally secular, in practice favor historically established religions. So we need a broader justification of existing burdens and benefits. Okay, I now move on to my third section where I try to make good some of those ideas by looking at particular cases. Uh, 
So to uh, recap what, what, what the idea is. Critical secularism, critical republican secularism, if you like, uh, upholds the secular character of the public sphere unless <coughs> doing so infringes a basic religious free exercise right or entrenches exorbitant majoritarian historical privileges. Uh, critical secular principles, I hope, offer broad but clear guidelines about how to weigh conflicting values and adjudicate the complex claims brought in the name of religion in contemporary societies. And the thought is that they should do though without either abstracting from or idealizing status quo arrangements and to that extent uh, they should improve on both official and tolerant republicanism. So I want to, to make good this claim by looking at four particular uh, Muslim demands that have been recently discussed. The first one I call multi-faith establishment, briefly referred to earlier. Uh, religious schools, also briefly referred to. Uh, public funding for mosques and uh, the wearing of religious dress as an example of religious exemption from general rules. And I want to argue that while critical Republicans accept the legitimacy of the latter two demands under certain conditions, they're much more skeptical about the former two. So they object to extending a number of privileges to Muslims, not because Muslims are not deserving of them, but because the privileges are not legitimate in the first place. So Muslim demands should not be acceded to or rejected simpliciter as under a conception of status quo neutrality, but they pose deep questions of systemic impartiality and they should prompt re-evaluation and reform of existing regimes of religious recognition. Okay, let me start then with my first uh, example. <clears throat> the first example is multi-faith uh, establishment. This refers to the demand that the organic links between the state and historically dominant churches be extended to Islam and other minority groups. As you can see, most of our discussion is about uh, Muslim and Islam, but it's more generally about religious minorities. Most of what I say could apply to religious minorities generally. I don't make any special uh, case about Muslims. Okay, so I've just said the organic links between the state and historically dominant churches be extended to Islam. What do I mean by organic links? I refer to persisting traces of the historical establishment of religion within the state dating back to the times when this, the state uh, upheld the public function, the moral truth, and the social value of Christianity. So what kind of examples do I have in mind? Well, in this country, the Church of England is formally linked to the British Crown, and Anglican bishops um, sit in the House of Lords. In Germany, the Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish public corporations are entitled to federally collected church taxes. In the French region of Alsace-Moselle, where the separation law of 1905 doesn't apply for historical reasons, uh, in in Alsace, then, churches receive public funding and priests, rabbis, and pastors are actually paid by the state. And uh, Catholic bishops are appointed by the head of state. 
Uh, France is actually the only state in the world where the head of state appoints Catholic bishops. Quite interesting for a secular state. More, perhaps less uh, exotically, uh, in many European uh, countries, religious, mostly Christian education is compulsory in state schools and religious beliefs enjoy special respect and special protection from the law, within the law. Uh, Think of um, uh, special conscientious objection rights, which I think is a more interesting case than blasphemy law lead us into a different path. So think of special uh, conscientious objection rights, the idea that uh, in most countries it's, it's, you can only opt out of military service on, on religious grounds, not on humanist uh, anti-militarist grounds. Okay, so multi-faith establishment, advocates of multi-faith establishment argue for the extension of these privileges uh, to Muslims and other religious minorities. So in England, proposals have been made for the appointment of Muslim representatives to the House of Lords and for the extension of uh, blasphemy laws to to Islam. The the issue was obviously settled with the religious hatred law in in, in last two years ago. Um, It's a slightly different issue. Uh, Let's stick to the appointment of Muslim representatives to the House of Lords. In Germany, there have been attempts to recognize Islam as a public corporation entitled to church tax. And in France, some have argued for the extension of the Alsatian model to the rest of the country. On my views, those proposals are uh, indefensible because they fail to meet both the main clause and my my two provisors, the two provisors of my standard of impartiality. Why is that? Well, I think establishment regimes uh, infringe the religious neutrality of the public sphere in ways that fail to show appropriate respect to non-religious citizens. Now, you might think that establishment is purely symbolic and it doesn't... um, It doesn't put anyone at a serious disadvantage, but I would disagree with that. I think symbols do matter when the basic identification of citizens with their institutions is concerned. So just as Muslims are likely to be alienated by the distinctively Christian religiosity permeating public institutions, so non-religious citizens are likely to be alienated by any official display of religiosity by institutions. Now, citizens' interest in maintaining the secular character of the public sphere could be overridden, uh, in, my, in my view, if a basic free exercise uh, interest was at stake. But I argue that no such interest is protected by uh, religious establishment. So I think in, in, a, in a liberal democracy or in a republic, uh, religious citizens should be given ample opportunities to practice and express their faith, including in public but they do not require privileged material or symbolic access to state institutions to do so. So in these particular cases, uh, critical Republicans would favor disestablishment, equalizing downwards, uh, rather than multi-faith establishment, equalizing upwards. Now, none of this is meant to imply that the secular state should, should offer no recognition to religion. It should, but exclusively for the purpose of protecting citizens' right to free exercise. 
that's different from entrenching the public function of religion within institutions. <clears throat> so I want to make a distinction between establishment and the institutional guarantee of free exercise rights, which I think is legitimate. Okay, let me move now to uh, the second um, uh, area that I examine, which is uh, schools. So the right to set up Muslim schools is the second demand uh, I want to look into. Now, undeniably, I think it would be unfair to refuse to extend to Muslims rights that are already granted to other religious groups. But my question is, are such rights legitimate in the first place? <clears throat> Can status quo arrangements be justified? And critical Republicans are deeply skeptical about the permissibility, or at least the value, of separate religious education. And it's, it's one area where I think the secularist case should be made most uh, forcefully. The thought here, and it's a thought shared by uh, French Republicans, but also uh, American political liberals, is to see educational policy as a privileged way of creating citizens, inculcating civic virtues of toleration, mutual respect, and civility, which guarantee the survival and stability of democratic arrangements. So on this view, schools are not purely extensions of the family home, as they would be on a libertarian or communitarian account, but they are uh, appropriately public spaces which should be importantly uh, detached from parental and local control in, in virtue of the special role in cultivating common democratic values among all children, regardless of their academic ability, class, uh, race, religion, or sex. And this is a quote from uh, Amy Gutman, almost uh, American uh, liberal. So Republicans and political liberals make the plausible assumption that such democratic values can only be cultivated through sustained uh, exposure to and engagement with ethical and social diversity. So as a result, they tend to be uh, partial towards common, comprehensive, secular <coughs> schools. Now, of course, the extent to which, particularly in this country, I think the extent to which particular religious schools are willing and able to pursue appropriate civic educational goals greatly vary, varies in practice, and it'd be rash to generalize. But, so it depends what you mean by a religious school. So um, the definition I use is uh, <coughs> that used by uh, Ian McMullen in a very recent, very good book published by Princeton University Press just at the end of last year called Faith in Schools. Um, autonomy, citizenship, and religious education. And he, he, this is how he defines a religious school. It means a school whose interactions with those outside the community of faith remain limited, whose pedagogy, rules, structures of authority, and large parts of the curriculum are designed to encourage children's belief in a particular re religion. Now, if this is what we mean by uh, a religious uh, school... I think it's undeniable that such a school would deny children exposure to ethical diversity and sufficient training in secular reasoning and therefore provides inferior preparation for citizenship than a common secular school. Now, what should follow from this in terms of policy is much more contested, of course, because reform of the school system in, in, the, in the real world is a very fraught uh, endeavor. So the abolition or regulation of private schools 
uh, whether the um, sorry, of religious schools might do nothing to improve the, the quality of state schools or their appeal to religious parents. So debate instead is centered on the question of school uh, regulation. And here I would just stress very briefly stress three main points. First one is that religious schools should be incorporated into uh, state systems very much uh, along the kind of British system so that they can be made to adhere to democratic standards. Uh, including a, a ban on selection and pursue civic goals. So there might be no justification for a blanket prohibition on religious schools, but I think there are grounds for suspicion of arrangements that tend to reproduce the home environment of the child in school, uh, shielding them, shielding the child from ethical, cultural and social diversity. So a moderate religious school whose curriculum, pedagogy and admissions policies foster respect of diversity and the cultivation of autonomy may be allowed provided they're tightly regulated. Um, so the thought here is that religious schools, if they are to be tolerated, should be tightly controlled and also funded by the state. I don't make the argument for funding here because I won't have time. Um, but the third point I want to make on schools is that state schools must be uh, reformed. So secular education should not be too burdensome for religious children. What I, mean, what I understand by a secular education is, in, is, a, is not the inculcation of a substantive humanist uh, doctrine, but rather kind of reasoned agnosticism and exposure to the value of different worldviews, religious and non-religious. So secular schools need not aim, or should not aim, rather, to eliminate or even discourage religious belief. They are called secular because of the absence of a religious purpose, not because of the absence of, not because of opposition to religion. So if, we, if you recall the distinction I drew earlier between uh, um, secularism as an institutional doctrine and secularism as a doctrine of conscience, we can say in line with the former that state schools should neither impose uh, school prayers nor dispense religious education, but that they should, in line with the latter, the doctrine of conscience, accept the wearing of religious signs by pupils, accommodate their religious needs as far as possible, uh, dietary requirements, religious holidays, and include knowledge about religions, including minority religions, in the curriculum. So within state schools, Muslim pupils must be respected, not despite their being Muslim, which is more or less the official laicity line, but as Muslims. And the thought is that such reforms would go a long way towards accommodating Muslim unease about state education in France. Certainly the case in France where there is little demand for separate Muslim schools. But even in this country, surveys have shown that while a majority of Muslims support Muslim schools, only a minority would actually want to send their children to them. And this suggests, to me anyway, that uh, separate schooling is perhaps not important to Muslims as, on the one hand, symbolic parity with other religions, and on the other hand, good state schools uh, for all, and this is very much in line with my proposals, which suggest that in some cases, symbolic parity can be best achieved by 
reducing existing privileges and providing good quality common ground uh, provision. Okay, let me move now to my third uh, and penultimate example, uh, which is uh, the demand for the public subsidy for the building of mosques. And here I think clarity would be best achieved really by equalizing upward. Uh, now this is, from a French-like perspective, this is quite an unexpected and very unorthodox proposal. Article 2 of the Law of Separation, 1905, is, is often interpreted as strictly prohibiting the use of public funds for the building or maintenance of new places of worship. But I think, uh, as far as Muslim places of worship in France are concerned, I think a convincing case for allowing an exception to this general principle can be made. Recall that I'd advocate policies of separation between state and religion unless they infringe a basic religious free exercise right or unless they entrench exorbitant majoritarian historical privileges. Well, I think that the demand that the state help Muslims build mosques meet both provisos, as it happens, the, the basic free exercise and the contextual parity proviso. could argue that the availability of suitable places of worship is central to the actual exercise of religious rights. And uh, scholars have agreed that the establishment and maintenance of a worship place is part of the fundamental rights of religious freedom enjoyed by uh, citizens of Europe. It's European jurisprudence, case law. Why the first generation of Muslims, uh, Muslim migrants, practice their religion within the confines of family homes or communal prayer rooms, the permanent settlement of Muslims on European soil has rendered the need for adequate public religious facilities particularly uh, acute. Um, and when I say, I mean adequate, so I'm not talking about substantive quantitative equality between number of churches and a number of um, of mosques, for instance, what matters is that there's an adequate provision of, uh, of places of worship to guarantee minimum standards. So in the case of <coughs> financially poor yet demographically significant religious groups such as Muslims in France, the legitimate interest they have in getting access to minimum religious facilities overrides the libertarian principle of state abstention and justifies that the state step in to guarantee actual conditions for free exercise. And this is all the more legitimate, I would argue, because Catholics still benefit from pre-1905 advantages. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, houses of worship built before 1905 continue to be state property and are maintained by local municipalities. Um, so it's many, many commentators in France speak of um, compensation of Muslims for the fact that they did, not, they did not benefit from state help before 1905. But strictly speaking, uh, Muslims should be compensated not for past disadvantage, but for present disadvantage, because public money is being channeled towards the maintenance of Catholic churches now. So helping Muslims build mosques would rectify this exorbitant historical privilege while facilitating the exercise of religious rights. And this strikes me as two necessary and in this particular case sufficient conditions for allowing an exception to the separationist 
main clause of uh, my critical republicanism. They are sufficient because they're not overridden by a compelling state interest in keeping the public sphere free of religion. So you can say that hospital and schools are relevantly public in the sense that they concern the fair distribution of primary goods in non-voluntary associations, whereas town streets where mosques and churches are built are not public in the same sense. Okay, let me now move to the fourth, my fourth example, uh, which is not as clear-cut because he addresses um, a, a wide variety of cases um, which concern religiously-based exemptions from uh, general rules. Now, this issue has received extensive coverage in um, the so-called multiculturalist literature in uh, Anglophone political philosophy. There are two main positions. One of them, which we can, ident we can uh, identify with um, Brian Barry, and it's very similar to that of uh, French official republicans, basically says that individuals are treated fairly when they are subjected to the same legitimate rules. So liberals should not preoccupy themselves with uneven burdens or unequal outcomes. At the other end of the spectrum, you find multiculturalist advocates of pragmatic even-handedness and substantive equality. Uh, people like Bhikkhu Parekh, for instance, uh, developing arguments that are very similar to those of what I call tolerant republicans, the even-handed, uh, equality as even-handedness. So they argue that a prima facie neutral rule can be indirectly discriminatory if it unreasonably burdens members of some group. The position I want to take on this debate is really an intermediate one, one that critically interrogate the nature of the rules to which exemptions are sought. It seems to me that this is one aspect largely ignored um, or not sufficiently uh, looked into. So on the one hand, the problem with Barry's uh, approach is that it doesn't pay adequate attention to what counts as a legitimate rule. So it discusses the legitimacy of general health and safety regulations, the classical case of uh, helmet wearing by, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, whether Sikhs wearing um, uh, Sikh turbans should be uh, exempted from the general health and safety regulation concerning the wearing of helmet when riding motorbikes. Um, so he discussed the legitimacy of such health and safety uh, regulations to show that if the law is legitimate, as in the helmet case, if the law is legitimate and furthers an important public interest, no religious exemption should be granted. And if exemptions are uh, legitimate, then this shows that the general law had no rationale in the first place. But what he barely discusses is the impact of what may be called customary soft rules, rules which have not been democratically discussed or subjected to stringent public interest tests. For example, he argues that most customary local norms, as he calls them, for example, norms of public order or decency, do not raise any issue of liberal universal justice. 
So in, in, the, in this case, it's not illegitimate for majoritarian conventions to be enforced according to the adage, this is how we do things around here. But I think what he underestimates is how customary rules can have implications for fairness when, when they unreasonably favor the preferences and values of the historical majority and whilst at the same time infringing the basic religious rights of minorities. So these are very, very small category of cases where, for instance, it may be difficult to practice Islam in a public space created and occupied by non-Muslim citizens. One example is uh, cemeteries uh, in, uh, in Europe. Um, it may be difficult to but consider cemeteries which are considered to be uh, secular insofar as Christian crosses, for example, are removed from common areas, um, and so they're public spaces, if you like. They're, they're, they're secular and they're religiously neutral. However, many cemeteries are run following customary, unreflected, pre-Christian or Christian norms in the sense that uh, burial plots traditionally face uh, east. And this is quite a relatively trivial customary rule, uh, but he, one effect of it is that it makes Western cemeteries unsuited for Muslim burials where the dead must imperatively be lying on their side and have their face turned towards Mecca, which would be the southeast in, when in Europe. So in such cases, I think it's not illegitimate that public funding be set aside to set up Muslim cemeteries or at least burial spaces within existing cemeteries allowing for the correct alignment of graves so the general idea is that we should be open to the questioning of, of customary rules when they have this proportionate effect on uh, religious minorities, when they entrench unreflected cultural norms of the majority while infringing basic religious rights of minorities. Basically, you have to meet both, both provisors. Because the problem with the multiculturalist argument and I will, I will conclude here, multiculturalists such as uh, Bhikkhu Pare, I was mentioning earlier, they tend to construe the concept of indirect discrimination far too broadly. So I think that a democratic law which serves a legitimate public purpose should not be routinely discarded, discarded as an arbitrary customary rule and exemptions to it should not be allowed, even if it generates disproportionate burdens on members of minorities. So I see no rationale, for example, for granting religious groups exemptions from the civil law of marriage or affiliations, insofar as this typically enforces a restrictive interpretation of women's rights. Now, of course, people may feel symbolic allegiance to religious or customary law, but in my view, this should complement but never override their civil rights. So it's true that the application of gender equality provisions may be burdensome for a number of religiously-minded people, but it would be absurd to say that the burden itself, the fact that it's a burden, um, uh, amounts to illegitimate indirect discrimination against them. And in addition, some multiculturalists fail to recognize that the cultural permeation of the public sphere is only a problem if it has worrisome uh, dominating effects. For, for instance, if it unreasonably burdens the exercise of 
basic religious rights. Now, much, of course, will revolve around how to identify which basic religious requirements give rise to rights claim, who is entitled to make this judgment, and how to assess what an unreasonable burden is. Um, uh, one problem, for instance, is... Um, to go back a bit. Uh, on one interpretation, members of religious minorities should be allowed or enabled to do what members of the majority can already do unaided. For example, thanks to a Christian influence calendar, celebrate major annual holidays or attend religious services once a week. And, and this makes sense. One problem, of course, is that it artificially homogenizes the demands of religious ritual and overlooks the fact that some religions, such as Islam and Orthodox Judaism may be more ritual-based than Christianity, and their adherents would see the performance of visible and regular rituals as basic to the practice of the faith. So these are terribly complicated uh, issues which lawyers have to grapple with uh, more and more. But what I just want to stress to conclude is that I think the great majority of, of, of Muslims, to go back to my, to my case, do not intend to um, impose an unreasonable maximalist conception of the demands of their religion. Rather, as I've suggested above or before, they legitimately seek to remove the most blatant inequalities in basic opportunities for the practice of their religion in Western countries. So I think they should welcome a critical republican approach to secularism for three reasons and I just highlight those three reasons first one is that um, as a way to round up the argument first, firstly because critical republicans endorse secularism as the best guarantee of equal citizenship and many Muslim demands are demands of access to the equal status of citizenship they're not demands for exorbitant special rights However, secondly, critical Republican equality is not the formal equality of official Republicans or of liberal egalitarians like uh, Brian Barry, nor does it necessarily mandate state abstention from intervention in religious affairs. Critical Republicans recognize that a secular state respects equal citizenship only if it is not, is not unreasonably burdensome on its religious citizens. So a critical Republican state would ensure that Muslims, like other believers, are able to follow the basic tenets of their religion. Um, it's committed to what I call free exercise. But thir and third, in contrast to both official and tolerant Republicans, uh, critical Republicans reject status quo neutrality and normatively scrutinizes existing church-state arrangements. Its commitment to what I've called contextual parity follows from the thought that the status quo can dominate members of minority religions and it prescribes how to treat religious minorities fairly in formerly secular but historically Christian dominated uh, societies. And interestingly a version of critical republicanism appears to be endorsed by a substantial number about a quarter of the European Muslims interviewed by um, a, a sociologist called Jeter Clausen. She did a, a massive uh, survey of Muslim opinion in Europe. And she describes their position 
she calls secular integrationism in the following way. The sentiment is that what applies to other faith should also apply to Islam. Many secularists prefer the strict separation of church and state, and if this was already the established rule, their first preference is that the state provides no assistance to religion. But given that state neutrality is generally not an option, the secularist wants equity, end of quote. Where my critical republicanism differs from this secular integrationism is in its belief that neutrality sometimes can and should be uh, an option, as in uh, separation, can and should be an option. In some cases, what Maudud skeptically calls equalizing downward is the right course of action, even if historically dominant religions lose out in the process. And in fact, I think if Republicans were actively to militate, as I've argued they should, against status quo arrangements regarding faith schools or Christian establishment, I think they would undermine the suspicion held by members of minority religions that Western secularism is no more than an ideology entrenching majority domination. So what I've tried to show is how a critical republicanism can rescue secularism from this charge of status quo neutrality. Thank you. Thank you very much, Cecile. Um, I'm sure there's a a lot of questions raised by this. Uh, We'll do it as follows. You can uh, raise your hand and I'll uh, put you uh, on the list and then please wait until you receive the microphone and speak clearly into the microphone so everyone can hear you. We have half an hour for discussion, so that should uh, leave us uh, some good time. Questions? Yes, gentlemen. Um, I found myself agreeing with most of what you said, um, but I do have a question about church maintenance. This is one area, or or, uh, building of new religious buildings. This is one area where you seem to be opting for equalizing up rather than down. And I'm trying to understand the logic. Um, What's wrong with the American model, where building and maintenance of religious buildings is a purely uh, private matter? And how are non-religious people uh, who are going to be forced or are being forced to pay both for maintenance and you know, even more expensively for construction of new buildings, um, how are they going to be compensated? And I'm contrasting that, for example, with the issue of burial. All of us will need to be buried at some point. It's no more expensive to bury somebody facing one way than another. There's nothing wrong with accommodating people. However, um, atheists don't tend to use religious buildings and consequently gain uh, gain no benefit from a rule that forces them to pay for them. That's my question. Thanks very much for this. Um, I have nothing against the American system. Um, And I think, you know, if, 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 if there is a country like the United States where there is a very long established tradition of having a a religious market in these matters with very little state uh, funding for uh, religious uh, enterprises, then this is fine. I mean, my my point was really a a point about contextual parity in particular countries where the tradition was different. And my point was that the 
French state, despite being, um, having this uh, separation law, also allowed quite a lot of public money to be channeled towards uh, the maintenance of, uh, of local churches. And um, I think on those grounds, within the French context, there might have been a case for allowing um, local municipalities also to help local Muslim communities to fund um, um, mosques. So by definition, the contextual parity argument will apply differently in different uh, in different countries. Yeah, that's a more complicated. That's a more complicated question. I mean, there, there are there are two. Okay, there are two. There are two provisos. So the other one was about the importance of uh, places of worship for the exercise of basic religious rights. And within a European context, uh, I think there's been a widely recognised need to accommodate these particular religious needs on the part of Muslims. So putting the two together, I did conclude. But obviously, this is. You know, these are judgments that are unlikely to be you know, to convince everyone, but I'm trying to see where the balance of considerations might lie in, in specific cases. Um, and this particular one is really a response to a, a line of argument that was very consensual in France, that there was no case at all for uh, the, any public money to be diverted towards the maintenance of mosques. So my, interve- my intervention was really partly an intervention into that particular debate because I thought there could be a case. I agree with you that we might also want to take a broader view of it and there might also be a convincing case that would have to be assessed on its own merits for uh, resuming or or forms of channeling of public funds to any kind of public building. The only, sorry, a religious um, building. The only, the other thought I have on this is that in, in this particular part of my work, I've only uh, looked at uh, arguments about the relationship between state, the state and, and uh, religion. But obviously there are other ways you can look at the argument for the maintenance of particular buildings. Right? So you could say uh, there's a public goods argument that says that we all have an interest in maintaining old churches because they are part of our Heritage and they're aesthetically pleasing and we have cultural reasons for wanting to have them. So this is an argument that also has to be a separate argument. So probably good arguments. Obviously it doesn't fall into my, my secularist uh, um, rationale for uh, raising doubts about um, the, 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 the French case. Uh, but clearly it might be, that, that's also one reason why I see nothing wrong with channeling more money proportionally towards um, traditional Christian churches on other grounds than the, sec- than the critical secularist grounds. Um, isn't there a problem with cases such as these which 
raised an important question for any conception of seconds, which is when courts get to the position of judging whether or not somebody's theology is correct, in that case, they brought in a number of Islamic experts to testify as to whether Mr. Gum's understanding of Islam was correct or not. That seems to me, outside the scope of the High Court, and more down to individual conscience, and that does far more to a person's uh, uh, human rights, uh, conception of human rights, than whether or not they're allowed to, whether or not they're allowed to break the uniform policy or not. Um, how, does, how does the questioning or defining of, of a person's religious beliefs by courts and court uh, experts um, fit in with your uh, scheme of, of secularism or your conversion secularism? Yeah, it's a very good question. Thank you. Um, I, I, I avoid the most uh, very, not very bravely avoid the most difficult cases in, 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 in the book uh, because um, the case I'm interested in is the, 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 the hijab controversy in France which concerned uh, pupils wearing a simple headscarf or hijab and for reasons that I explain at great length I, I don't think a case, you know, judges should not have to have a say about it because on no ground should uh, a ban uh, be legitimate but you raise a very difficult question, which I briefly alluded to at the end of the talk, which is that um, there might not be consensus as to what the basic tenets of a religion uh, is and to what extent are judges the best people to decide um, what counts as a basic religious right. Um, even in my particular case, even though I argue that there should be no judicial intervention or legal intervention to prevent the wearing of hijab in state schools, the issue might still arrive for the, the wearing of the same garment uh, for people in other positions of um, uh, as state officials, for instance. Or Generally, I agree with you that uh, it shouldn't be the business of judges to decide what is central to a religion and they should defer to um, whoever the established authorities within their religions are widely uh, seen to be. The problem is, of course, that in the case of traditionally established religions in certainly Western Europe, for instance, where Catholicism is a classic example, but also Judaism, there was a fairly centralized hierarchy that you could turn to when you weren't sure whether you know, a particular biblical uh, injunction applied or not. Uh, in the cases of, a, say, certain uh, development within Protestantism, uh, proliferation of various interpretations of the Bible, it becomes really complicated uh, to decide what the, what the line should be. Now you might say, why do, we, why do we need a line in the first place? Why not say whatever an individual think their religious duties are should be considered as their religious duties? That's, I mean, that's a position that's been defended by some, but it's very problematic when you need to have a general rule that would apply. Uh, in particular, you've cited some cases of you know, uniform or you need to be very, very clear as to the kind of cases where exemptions should be 
uh, should be allowed. So you know, it's not going to be good enough to say well, anyone who can claim a religious reason for doing something should ipso facto have a good reason for, do, for being allowed to do it. So it is terribly uh, complicated. As I said, lawyers have just went to a conference last, last week in Florence. There were lots of lawyers who really gone into the, the area and, and, and um, just realized it's, there's, there's hardly a uniform view on this among you know, European lawyers and um, judges. And so there's a lot of work to be done, both philosophically and, and uh, legally. Um, yeah, you talked about um, schools, and uh, it seems to me that, well, what I wanted to ask was if you could enlarge on, if you regard a, a school, a secular school, as a possible model of uh, a multi-phase establishment, a multi-phase establishment, if you could enlarge perhaps on, you said uh, a secular school needs to accommodate your own favor of a secular school accommodating religious needs. And I wonder if it would be possible to enlarge a little on that, what that actually means in terms of festivals or divisions or, or discussions between people or what. And as a subsidiary question, I wondered if you could make a prediction as to whether um, a successful multi-faith school in that sense would, be, um, would encourage the development of what you might call a secular value, value system. Thanks very much. Two, two points on this um, very important topic. Um, the, reason why value, the main reason why value uh, secular schooling um, is because it allows social and cultural mixity. That's what, that's what it's all about. This is also my main reason for being opposed to the ban on religious symbols worn by pupils. The best way to include everyone is to, is to take them as they are, including as religious uh, pupils or, or including as children who've been brought up in a religious environment. Um, so to me, the thought, the, the, the really schematic way in which the debate developed in France that you were either for secularism and therefore against the hijab or you were against secularism and therefore pro-hijab I think was, was, was wrong from the start I mean I think you, you should be for secularism precisely to have grants to include old pupils from all religions in the same school that's, that's the main, I mean the strongest argument to, to, to justify um, embracing religious diversity in schools. And the secular school is, is the school that best embraces diversity. That's why I wouldn't call it multi-faith. Um, I think you need, I think the school itself needs to be secular. So I don't think that, what I mean by this is, and obviously the devil will be in the detail and I'm not an educational specialist. So, uh, but uh, I think, for instance, that school prayers are problematic insofar as they're compulsory for all pupils, and even if they are multi-faith, I think they're problematic for pupils who don't come from um, a religious uh, background. However, I would want to make a distinction between prayer or a, 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 actual engagement uh, and participation in a re religious ritual 
on the one hand, and exposure to um, um, exposure to a, a religion, um, which is a, a more epistemological relationship to the to the to the religious beliefs, um, rather than an endorsement. The distinction has been is contestable and it has been contested, and there's a lot of um, um, school um, regulation reform that attempt to grapple with it. But it seems to me that the, the basic intuition that uh, sec, uh, a, a school that is um, institutionally secular is best way to uh, be maximally inclusive, uh, I think is, is right. Um, the second point I wanted to make in relation to your second uh, comment is um, I've suggested that I'd be happy on, 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 the, on the equality ground um, with uh, moderately religious schools. I also argue in other parts of the book that um, on what I call the... Perhaps to, to clarify, I, in, in, my, my take on the question of school and, and the hijab is that it raises three different issues. The first one is the equality issue, which is the one I talked about today. To what extent is a secular public sphere, the best way to show equal respect to all pupils or all citizens, by extension. That's the neutrality, equality argument. There's another set of areas, which is about what I call autonomy, individual autonomy. And here the question is slightly different, is to what extent does the school uh, have an, uh, as one of its purpose to emancipate children from the religion or culture that children have been uh, um, inculcated at home. It's a slightly different, slightly different uh, question. Uh, and I also here defend um, um, the compatibility of moderate religious schooling with my secular ideals. On the third one, and this is where I sort of put my cards on the, on, on, on the table, the third one is what I call the, the solidarity argument. Um, uh, which is about the importance of living together, sharing public spaces, the importance of dwelling together in the same neighborhoods, in the same schools. And to me, that's, also, that's the strongest argument for not allowing even moderately religious schools insofar as they apply some selection. That is, I would say that one of the major, most important value underpinning secular education is this, the idea that children will of all um, um, backgrounds will just physically dwell together. So they'll be exposed to diversity, not simply through learning, not simply epistemologically, but by sharing spaces and by being uh, physically together. And that's, that's um, what I call this, this, the kind of solidarity arguments for uh, secular schooling. Stand up and oh, shout. Okay, I'll just stand up and shout. Be loud uh, and proud. A distinctive feature of your argument is its sensitivity to context, and I think that's, that's a good thing. But I just wondered how far to push you on, on that, because, uh, for example, um, Muslim students that I've had who come from Islamic countries have often said 
well, you know, something along the lines of critical secularism is the right situation, is the right kind of thing to adopt in European countries, but it would be wrong to adopt it in my predominantly Islamic country where, where Islam is the established religion. And I guess if they were to be offering a principled defense of that rather than a purely self-serving one, it would go something like this, that um, in the context of a country where that has become established and believers practice their religion in line with an established church rule, as it were, then, you know, so long as there isn't explicit, you know, um, uh, discrimination against people of other faiths or oppression, rather, of people of other faiths, then if you were to force them to adopt a more secular stance, in a sense, you'd be offending one of your principles, namely, or your side constraints, namely, affecting their capacity to exercise religion. So I just wondered if you were sympathetic to that or, or not, as a line of argument. Yeah, it's a difficult question, obviously. Um, so the question is, uh, given that my principles are contextual, they apply to formerly secular but customarily Christian-dominated societies, and I look at some of the implications of this for political practice, how would my argument fare in a society that, uh, instead of being Christian-dominated, is Muslim-dominated? Um, Yeah, okay. Um, well, I make just two points on this. It's very complicated and um, um, in the book I stick to Western Europe. Um, <laughs> um, I had two points. I just have one now. So one just slipped on my mind. Um, yeah. The first one was to pick up on your point that um, you said something like um, Islam is the dominant, is entrenched in the institutions of the state, but other members of among members of the religions are are, are tolerated. Or quite a lot depends on the kind of rights they have. Because my my theory is not contextual to the point that it gives up on its main commitment, which is that um, should be committed to a plat, you know a, a platform of shared equal rights in matters of access to basic uh, opportunities. Right? So to that extent, it depends what the actual effect of establishment uh, uh, are. If they infringe basic rights to the extent that members of religious minor minorities do not, do not have access to the same employment opportunities as members of the majority, then I would, you know, I would, I would be uh, against it. The second point I want to make is far more complicated, which is that to say that many people have noted that my well, secularism, a particular way of drawing the distinction between the public and the private, is itself an upshot of the Christian tradition. So secularism, as I conceive of it, 
is contextually dependent because it's based on a particular historical trajectory whereby give to God, give to God what belongs to God and to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, this general principle which might exist in all religions but has taken a particular form so we, we do understand the separation between say the family and the non-family or the, the, the social and the public perhaps as Christians or as Judeo-Christians as opposed to as neutral secularists as I would have suggested so that's much more complicated it seems to me uh, but I don't see it as affecting the main clause of secularism which is that um, a, a secular state should basically provide for equal rights for all its citizens it should be uh, in a sense it's a liberal democratic state establishment might be tolerable provided that uh, it doesn't have uh, disproportionately burdensome effects on members of minorities Uh, to return to the question of uh, financial support for buildings, should there not at least be um, a financial test as to whether the people receiving them actually need the funds? And if you don't have that, is there not the danger that the funds that they could have used would be diverted to other activities, such as going out and evangelizing, which atheists such as myself would then find ourselves subsidizing activities we do not approve of? Yes, and in fact, uh, it's interesting you mentioned this because um, in, in, in the French case, um, there's a distinction between um, cult-related and, and cultural activities. And the French state has actually been able to channel public funds towards Muslims to allow them to build mosques, provided that it wasn't called a mosque, but it was a cultural center, a cultural activity, so on, on, on a cultural argument. But in the corner, it had a mosque. But that was of, that's, that's the way they went round. They circumvented the 1905 uh, separation problem. I'm mentioning this because that's not my, obviously, that's not an answer to your particular question. But I'm mentioning it because the reason why they were so keen on helping um, as Muslim communities build their mosque and providing public funds and therefore control over uh, how the money would be spent is because they were terribly frightful of foreign money, particularly money for Saudi Arabia being diverted to or being uh, coming to the country to subsidize the building of mosques with, with very little public scrutiny. Uh, on, on, on the activities that would be undertaken uh, in, in, the, in the building. So. Uh, we'll take the last question here. See? Make it a good one. Okay. <laughs> no pressures on you, David. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm wondering, um, and, and in a way this, um, this um, is, is probably motivated by the types of concerns that came up from Richard Bellamy about the applicability of your ideas to non-European contexts. And I'm wondering whether it matters the way that you define religion and the way that you define secularism in relationships to one another. Um, I guess one, one way that you could flesh out 
what, um, what, what religion is and what, and what secularism is in response to it is that, um, um, it's that secularism is partly about build, was partly about building a national identity um, in people to kind of take over from the non-national identities, the religious identities that used to claim legitimate authority over people's actions. Um, and I guess in that sense, it's sort of treating just secularism as um, it's sort of tied to, tied to nation building, tied to the building of national affinities. But another way of, of treating religion as sort of a, a comprehensive doctrine, um, a particular conception of the good that people have, and if that's your fleshing out of it, then secularism looks more like um, uh, something very much like state neutrality with respect to different people's conceptions of the good, value pluralism, essentially. So I'm just wondering whether um, I'm just wondering whether you see whether you see it more as one or the other, and whether that um, and, and the effect that that has on whether you can apply your ideas to not to sort of the types of contexts such as the Middle East um, or Africa, I guess where you don't have the types of republics or liberal democracies or national identities or robust states that you have in, here in Western Europe. Okay. Um, several things, in, I think, in, in the question. Um, I'll, I'll just go to two of them. First one, you, you were saying something like um, in, in certain cases, or historically, uh, the secularist state, the secularist state uh, emerged um, as a way of building national identity, particularly in societies where um, say Progress. I'm thinking of 19th century European countries, for instance. Uh, um, democratic progress was hampered by uh, the, the reactionary forces of the Catholic Church. And um, in order to win this battle, the, the, the Republican state had to step in and forge a national identity, um, which would be a substitute for, a motivational substitute for. Uh, the Christian ethos, which, which up to then had acted as, as a kind of national bond, national glue, and uh, that's absolutely right. And I, I have a, a third of my book is on, is on, is on this. So that's that, that's what I call the solidarity argument, which is which is the more, as you say, the more substantive content of laicity. So laicity as a neutralist strand, which is the one I talked about today, has got an, a perfectionist strand, which is the autonomy individual autonomy one, and it's got a communitarian strand, which is the, the one you, you, talk, you talk about. Um, clearly, given, I mean, I think you wanted to expand this point and to say that in, in other countries, particularly uh, in, the Middle, in the Middle East, um, the secularism had been mobilized and harnessed to to, to um, colonial purposes, uh, and, and in particular uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a way to uh, shore up the authority of fairly authoritarian states that imposed and, and, and tried to keep at bay religious forces in, in society, and it's precisely those religious forces that come back with a with a, with a vengeance in, in many in many parts of the world. And you know, as a, I, I, I completely agree with that. I'm, 
When I discuss secularism, I'm really trying to very clearly define what it is that we're discussing, because I think there are many strands to uh, secularism. And so the one I've been trying to stick to uh, today is this idea that I do think there's something in secularism that is compatible, or in fact that is the best expression of liberal neutrality. So I don't agree with those who, you say that, those who say that secularism is um, a controversial, comprehensive conception of the good. There is an anti-religious doctrine, militant doctrine, as far as I can see, if suitably conceived, is the only ecumenical, consensual doctrine that we can, we can all share. That's, what, that's my, my favorite understanding of secularism as a doctrine of equality. But you're absolutely right to draw on other strands of it, of it and um, my take on them are, is much more critical. I know there are some more questions, but uh, unfortunately our uh, time is out. Uh, thank you all very much for participating uh, and for your excellent questions and, and lively debate. But I think especially we should uh, thank again uh, Cecile. Thank you very much uh, for coming. I'll just uh, remind you all that next Tuesday in this room, uh, same time, there is the final in our series. Uh, there will be Christina Lafont speaking on religion and secularism in the public sphere.